0: Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Thought of René Girard.
1: We owe so much to the Bible that we have a feeling it comes from us, and we cannot recognize our debt. When we criticize the Bible, we can criticize that only with the Bible, not with the Iliad, not with Greek philosophy. We have assimilated so much, and we are not aware that the substance we have assimilated comes from the Bible.
0: It's often said that we live today in a secular society, a society of a novel type that is neither defined nor dominated by religion. But this condition in which we think we live is largely imaginary, according to René Girard. There is no society without religion, he writes in his book Violence and the Sacred, because without religion, society cannot exist. What we're actually living in today, he thinks, is a form of Christianity, which we've become unable to recognize. René Girard grew up in France and made his career in the United States, retiring from Stanford University in 1995. His writings have ranged over literary criticism, anthropology, the history of religions, and the interpretation of the Bible. In tonight's program, he talks about how Christianity has shaped our world and why this shaping influence has become invisible to so many. The broadcast is the fifth and final episode in a series about Rene Girard called The Scapegoat. It's presented by David Cayley.
2: In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. It is not peace I have come to bring, but a sword, for I have come to set son against father, daughter against mother. A person's enemies will be the members of his own household. The passage is puzzling. Why will Jesus' gospel of love and mutual forbearance create division and discord? René Girard's interpretation unlocks the puzzle. Human societies, Girard says, create order by channeling violence towards scapegoats. Envy and resentment are directed away from one another and towards a common enemy. Ritual sacrifices institutionalize this way of expelling violence. Jesus denounces the lie on which this system rests and allows himself to be crucified in order to reveal for all time the innocence of all sacrificial victims. But this revelation, by depriving people of the means to disown their violence and project it onto others, inevitably brings that violence home to roost, so to speak, setting father against son, and so forth. Jesus flushes the hidden violence of culture into the open, imposing a choice on people. And it is this choice, Girard says, that constitutes the unveiling or uncovering that Christians call the Apocalypse. The
1: apocalypse is not some invention, it's if we are without sacrifices, either we're going to love each other or we're going to die. We have no more protection against our own violence. Therefore, we are confronted with it, either we're going to follow the rules of the kingdom of God, or the situation is going to get infinitely worse.
2: This either-or, in Gerard's view, is the dynamic that the Christian gospel introduces into history. The effect is gradual, exerting itself over many centuries. But this doesn't by any means imply that the world then grows magically less violent. Sacrifice is a means of limiting violence, a single victim thrown to the gods so that everyone can live in peace. So, when people no longer sacrifice, but also fail to repent, violence can easily grow worse. And this worsening violence, Girard says, is an effect that many contemporary people seem to hold against Christianity. You know, I'm pretty accustomed now to these
1: meetings about violence. Everybody is talking about violence today. They've all read Candide, and violence is a scandal to them. And what kind of a god is that who is supposed to bring us peace and look at the world, you know, so people show up indignantly as if uh, God were an American president who had not fulfilled his uh, promises. But I said, where did you see in the gospel that Christ was bringing peace? He tells you himself that he's bringing a sword and not peace, that he's separating father from son, mother from Where did you find that the Christ promises immediate peace? Christ tells you, you have to fight for the kingdom of God. Otherwise, you, you won't have either the kingdom of God, or even the kingdom of Satan is going to collapse. Because the kingdom of Satan is self-contradictory, and is going toward its destruction. You see, so people read the gospel; they don't read the Gospels at all — but they take for granted that the Gospels are a recipe for peace. If the stock market keeps going up, and at the same time we have peace, the world is fine. No more problems. What could be better? But why don't we have that peace ensured as much as it should be? You see? And they get angry at the Gospels, because they are absolutely sure, without having read the Gospels — even if they go to church today, they hardly read the Gospels anymore — they're absolutely sure that uh, Jesus is promising peace on Earth immediately. You're all good boys, and if you're politically correct, you will have peace. And indeed, the churches are practically saying that now.
2: Well, maybe but the that's why Christmas is, is so popular. That's why Christmas all is so popular. All those pop- angels with and their trumpets Christmas saying is, everything's yeah, going to be fine. everything,
1: peace on earth <laughs> and so forth. Everything is going to be fine. Yeah. But the, the next minute, you know, Herod is killing all the babies in Bethlehem.
2: King Herod kills the babies of Bethlehem because he has been told by the wise men who have come from the east that a new king has been born there a parable of what Gerard is saying. The birth of Jesus occasions violence from his infancy. When he preaches in Nazareth, his hometown, the people are so enraged, the gospel says, that they try unsuccessfully to throw him off a cliff. And in the apocalyptic passages in his teaching, he predicts worse to come, saying that there will be signs in the sky, nations in agony, men fainting with terror, and even the powers of heaven shaken. This teaching is often read, Girard says, as a prophecy that history will end in a rain of fire from heaven. But he believes that what it actually foresees is the raging of human violence when it is no longer held in check by sacrificial institutions. The violence
1: doesn't come from God. I'm very impressed by the fact that the fundamentalists, you know, sometimes I talk to them or I see students. I say, but why do you want that violence to come from God? Now, isn't it a wonderful discovery that it comes from man? And therefore, you, you can justify God and not blame God for the violence which is about to descend upon the world. God has nothing to do with it, obviously. It's man's human sin which is bringing it about. And there is nothing in the Gospels that says it's a violence of God. It says it will be as in the days of Sodom, and so forth. But it doesn't say you know, anything more. At no point does Jesus say, God will punish you.
2: Jesus' apocalyptic sayings predict a human conflagration, Girard says. But modern, enlightened Christians have generally failed to see this and so have treated these texts as embarrassments. He gives, as an example, the early 20th century medical missionary and biblical scholar Albert Schweitzer.
1: Poor Albert Schweitzer, you know, is the one who... uh decided all biblical scholarship was false, because they hadn't seen this enormous amount of apocalyptic stuff in the Gospels. They thought it applied to our world, you know, but it has nothing to do with it. It's an old Jewish world, where they thought the end of the world was about to come, and so forth. So, he said, we can reject all this. But we live in a world, suddenly, where the end of the world is present again. But it comes back not as a religious text, but as scientific knowledge, as the only type of uh, knowledge we believe in. Let's suppose that an extraterrestrial being, more advanced than we are. I love that, well, because the only type of advance is technological advance. So people more advanced mean people with spaceships go faster than light, therefore can do what we will never do, which is to get in touch with other beings if they are there. Anyway, if people are more advanced than us, if you showed up here, and if you said, look at these guys, they suddenly find themselves in a world which they can destroy in a wink of the eye, literally. If they unleash the destructive power they have so patiently amassed, you know, against each other in total madness, really. Or they can do that maybe even with their technological development, which will make life impossible in the world. At the same time, they have texts which say the religious revelation of the present time is linked with the end of the world. And for a long time, when they were not able to destroy the Earth, the part of these texts which talk about the destruction of the world was very important to them. Today, even the people who still believe in this revelation, the theologians, exclude totally this as if it were something indecent. Now, wouldn't they think we are mad?
2: Apocalypse, in René Girard's interpretation, does not refer to any divine or otherworldly intervention in history, but to an historical process which Christianity initiates. And what drives this process, he says, is revelation, the bringing to light of everything formerly hidden or held down, both for good and for ill. Apocalypse means revelation, period.
1: Uncovering. Uncovering. Because if you reveal what sacrifice is, if you understand what human violence is, you're faced by the ultimate issue which is the total refusal of violence, or surrendering to it and destroying everything. In other words, one could say there is more and more good and more and more bad in the world, as this happens. You know, There is more and more good, because we have to say that technological progress is good, our knowledge of violence is good, our feeling for victims is good, We kill more victims in our world than we ever did. People say that, but we can also say we save more victims than we ever did. And uh, we feel that victims have rights as victims. You can have hundreds of propositions there and show that our world is the best and the worst at the same time. And that it makes no sense to see it as just dreadful as uh, reactionary people will, in a way. Or just wonderful, as some kind of uh, free enterprise, globalism, optimism will see it. You see what I mean? You have to mix up more and more to see it as both the best and worst, which is very difficult. And uh, as a world which is total instability, where our freedom becomes more and more responsible for everything all the time. Our powers are increasing all the time, in every domain.
2: Our world, in René Girard's view, is now in the midst of the apocalypse that Jesus predicted. But curiously, he says, we are less and less able to recognize what is really going on because Christianity has been increasingly set aside as a possible form of explanation. This rejection begins, he says, in the 18th century with the rationalist, anti-religious prejudices of the Enlightenment. The
1: Enlightenment thinks it knows everything because it just got rid of religion. And it thinks that religion is totally responsible for violence. And uh, this, I think, occurs in the 18th century. That's why I want to write an article about Candide. You know, Candide is a prodigious masterpiece, but it's, it's the appearance of the modern notion of violence as a scandal created only by institutions, which has nothing to do with the individual man, because the individual man is good. And it's only institutions which are responsible for violence.
2: Candide. The satire by Voltaire, about which Gerard wants to write, follows the adventures of a naive young man who travels through the many upheavals of his time, endlessly appalled at the violence he witnesses, but never doubting his own innocence. The spirit of Candide is reproduced today, Gerard thinks, in journalistic media, who report from all the current capitals of violence, but always exempt themselves and their audience from their scandalized indictment. The media today
1: are scandalized very seriously. And they feel they have absolutely nothing to do with all that violence. They're obviously innocent. They denounce it. You see what I mean? They, all they do is to denounce it. And denounce it. Everybody else is responsible, ultimately. Because who doesn't belong to one of these terrible institutions, state, religion, you know, and so forth. All the sacrificial institutions so they are scapegoated. And the main one, of course, is the church. The church has been scapegoating for so much that today it's even practically forgotten. But the state, you know, today we think the state is bad. Therefore, if we have a globalized world where everybody will be more uniform, there won't be any violence. This is still the idea that violence comes from differences. And they don't realize they are creating more and more the conditions of violence by doing away with borders, you know, borders, what was the purpose of borders? To keep violence inside or to have violence between two nations or three, but it wouldn't move, move to the entire world. When the world is globalized, you're going to set fire to the whole thing with one match. <laughs> would <it> be enough. <laughs> and they don't understand that because they feel that if there is no barrier between individuals,
2: they're going to get along. The good individual and the bad institution is the primary myth of our time, according to René Girard. And it leads, in his view, to a chronic and dangerous illusion about our own innocence. We take what we owe to Christianity for granted, he says, and so never notice that it's only because of Christianity that the Enlightenment can criticize Christianity in the first place. Today we see the violence of Christianity.
1: We don't see the violence Christianity has prevented all through history. All through the Middle Ages, you know, this dreadful church, they were spending their time trying to limit war to three days a week between this Germanic tribe, you know, to forbid war on Friday first, on Sunday, and so forth. And if you look at the story, it's infinitely more complicated. And today, we we read it all one way as we were reading it the other way. You know, people who are madly for the Middle Ages, who. even I was reading, uh, they were reprinting a book of Cardinal Guardini, who say that the Middle Ages is a summit of Western civilization. It's been going down way ever since. This is false. You see, but at the same time, there were, in medieval society, Christian aspects which have been lost since. The situation is so complex that the main thing to understand is that you cannot pass any judgment on the recent past, any more than you can condemn Babylonian society or Sumerian culture. You can try to understand, you know, for instance, the Inquisition. The Inquisition, no doubt, is the first attempt at totalitarian government. The Church, in its good conscience, feeling they had all these people in their hands. They were the supreme power. Suddenly, they feel it's escaping them. What was their duty? Was not giving up there, surrendering the work they were doing? They didn't see violence the way we do. Therefore, when the legate of the pope in Albi, in the days of the Albigensian War, say, kill them all, God will recognize his own, he was incredibly serious. Because what was wrong with sending these people, the good ones, to paradise? Anyway, God is working with death, you know, and uh, there is a tendency in our world to see violent death as the worst possible evil. But throughout history, there are many people who had values which were more important than their own life. And to a certain extent, you almost feel like you have to rehabilitate this today as our life on this earth, in a world without God, where there is nothing else, and so forth, becomes the one exclusive value, and so forth. People didn't feel that way. They felt that it was better to kill people with a sword and be finished with it in two minutes, than to deliver them into hell by allowing the Albigensian heresy to take over their souls. So, killing their body, which would resurrect anyway, since they really believed in the resurrection, was the lesser evil, was the good sacrifice. Today, we don't admit that anymore, and we are right. But we have to try to understand them. We are the first to regard violence the way we do. They were still partly, they had one of their two feet in the previous world. You know, today, for instance, you have the discussions between Muslims and Christians, which in my way are very weird, because Christians see themselves as totally guilty toward the Muslim, because they've been violent to the Muslim. Okay, and this is true. And they are guilty from a Christian point of view. But they are certainly not guilty from a Muslim point of view, since the Muslims are supposed to spread the Muslim faith through the sword. There is no doubt of that today it's not said anymore because everything is becoming christian in a certain way but the through the sword is an absolute obligation and there was no saint paul in the spread of the muslim world it wasn't done through convincing you know people uh, little people and so forth to become christian it was done through the sword by the fastest and the greatest military conquest the world has ever known But in discussions between Muslims and Christians, it goes without saying that you will never talk about that. Because in these discussions, we take Christian ethics to be the absolute value. It's a modern value, and it doesn't come from Christianity. It's a natural way to be for us. And when the the people complain about the violence that comes from Christianity, they are right. But they are throwing back at Christian, Christian values, not their own. They can complain because they have Christianity to complain with. From what point of view otherwise could they blame Christianity? We don't radicalize things enough. We take for granted certain aspects of Christian ethics, as if they had been the norm. If you had gone to a Roman functionary, and if you had said, I'm a victim of your system, you owe me some kind of uh, compensation. He would have been so amazed, you know, and he would say, you deserve to die for saying that. (laughs) What right do you have? Are you a Roman citizen? No. To the scaffold, or to the wild beasts. We don't see the world as it is, you know, as it was. And in a way, there still is. We always turn against Christianity, the foothold into nonviolence that it gave us, where would it come from before?
2: Condemning Christianity's failures while taking its achievement for granted leads, in Girard's view, to an upside-down view of history. We read the record of Western civilization as a violent sequence of crusades, inquisitions, and colonial conquests, but we often overlook the violence of the cultures that were overcome by the West. Girard gives, as an example, the institution of potlatch, a feast involving competitive gift-giving and the destruction of wealth that was practiced among the tribes of the Pacific coast of North America. At some point, the Canadian
1: government banned potlatch. And if you look at the documents, you realize that they banned potlatch for extremely good reason. It was a tremendous destruction of wealth in particular blankets you know or things like that which was a dreadful thing potlatch is a, is as bad as uh, anorexia and bulimia you know it's a it's destruction which ultimately is for the prestige of the two or three chiefs who are fighting about who will destroy the greatest uh, quantity of goods now think about canadian people in the 19th century rationalists and so forth They felt it was their duty to forbid such an institution. Can you blame them for that?
2: Girard argues that we should try to understand why people acted as they did in the past rather than blaming them. He says this, I think, not to excuse evil acts, but to point up a prevalent form of scapegoating. Blaming our ancestors always implies the claim that we would have done better in their shoes. It's a way of protesting our eternal innocence and brightening our self-esteem. And this is what he objects to. Otherwise, he says, he has no wish to try to justify the terrible and undeniable suffering of which Western civilization has been the cause. I have absolutely no right, you know, to say,
1: this is worth that and you can pile up suffering that high in order. I, I don't want to do that. I just say I'm a Christian. I believe that it's all for the good. But uh, it's only faith. I don't want to justify it. I can justify it with all sorts of arguments, but they are no good, because when it's
2: real suffering, uh,
1: you have to remain silent. A
2: rush to judgment, René Girard says, is characteristic of our time. And by this excessively critical spirit, he says, we too easily put ourselves above the world. I think what is lacking
1: in an attitude which is too negative is gratitude. You know, one of the things in Judeo Christian tradition, which is tremendously important, is the praise of God. And that's what we seem to be unable to do in the modern world. We are all rebellion. And we are self righteous rebellion because you say we are better than this history. We would do better if we were in the place of God. That's all it means.
0: I'm Paul Kennedy, and on Ideas Tonight, you're listening to The Scapegoat, a profile of French thinker René Girard, presented by David Cayley. Christianity,
2: Girard has said, is the invisible foundation of the modern world. It is the source of our capacity for self-criticism, the cause of our sensitivity to victims. But it is not perceived as such because we take these capabilities to be a natural endowment and see Christianity only as a corrupting institution that imposes on our native benevolence and rationality and tries to control us, by instilling guilt and fear. This, roughly, is what Girard calls the Enlightenment critique of religion. But the Enlightenment at least wants to preserve Christian ethics, even if it thinks it can dispense with the rest of Christianity's institutional and theological apparatus. Our own time has seen an attack on Christianity that questions even Christian ethics. And this attack, for Girard, begins with Friedrich Nietzsche, the mid-to-late-nineteenth-century German philosopher. Nietzsche, in his late writings, argues that Christian sympathy for victims enervates society and saps its strength. Against Christ, Nietzsche pits the Greek god Dionysus, whose death and rebirth, he says, symbolizes a tragic acceptance of life. Nietzsche understands what Christianity has accomplished, Girard says, but he rejects it.
1: My main discovery, I say, is uh, that God is for the the victims and not against them, in Christianity. But this is not my discovery at all. It is Nietzsche's discovery. Aphorism 1052, in the will to power. Dionysus and Christ, same martyrdom, same death, same collective death. The difference is in the interpretation. Dionysus, the acceptance of suffering, there must be victims, and so forth. Christ, the innocent victim. No one should be sacrificed. And then, the whole idea of the morality of the slaves starts from that discovery. So, Nietzsche says, Jesus, the innocent victim, all that nonsense about victims we have, and he connects it with his society, because Nietzsche is the first age of political correctness, in a way, much less than today. But he sees that the concern for victims in the modern world comes from Christianity, and that's what he calls the morality of the slave. And he says we have to do away with that, and
2: Nazism didn't say anything else. In the section of The Will to Power that Girard quotes, Nietzsche says that Jesus' cross is a curse on life, a pointer to seek redemption from it. Christ's innocence is an objection to life and the formula of its condemnation. Dismembered Dionysus, on the other hand, torn to pieces by his worshippers, is a promise of life. His death, a recognition that life in its eternal fruitfulness and recurrence involves agony, destruction, and the will to annihilation. Christianity, Nietzsche says in another late essay, sides with everything sickly and base. It fosters pity rather than the tonic emotions that heighten our vitality. This invective has been extremely influential with later generations, but it is all based, according to Girard, on a misunderstanding. It is the death of Christ that represents heroic opposition to the crowd, he says, while the death of Dionysus is submission to the crowd.
1: The Dionysiac sacrifice is the voice of a mob. And the Christian solution, the victim is innocent, is the truth of a very small minority. The aristocrats are there. They happen to be socially fishermen here, good for nothing there. What does it matter? They turn into aristocrats at the moment when they oppose the mob around them, according to Nietzsche. But Dionysus is obviously the mob. There is not one episode of his myth which is not decided by the mob. Christianity is the exception, saying no to the mob. And Dionysus is the acceptance of the mob.
2: Nietzsche's attacks on Christianity are founded, in Girard's view, on a misunderstanding. And Nietzsche has, in turn, been misunderstood. He is thought of as the philosopher of the death of God. But in one of the writings that gives rise to this reputation, Aphorism 145 in The Gay Science, what Nietzsche actually writes about is the killing of God. God is dead, Nietzsche writes, and it is we who have killed him. What was holiest and most powerful of all that the world has yet possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood from our hands? Usually people call
1: it the death of God, text of Nietzsche. And uh, if you look at the text closely, you see that uh, the expression death of God is there once, but we killed God. We are the killers of God. What are we going to do to atone for that death? What kind of rituals, what kind of uh, purifications are we going to find? Therefore, it's a birth of religion, through the death of the victim. Therefore, here again, it's an incredibly powerful text. He was under a kind of inspiration, you know, that is very profound. But we all read it as the death of God. The formula which is repeated all the way through that passage is We killed God. We killed God. What are we going to do? We have, it's like drinking the sea, and now there is no up and no down, no right and no left. All positions are lost. What are we going to do to atone for the death of God? One could just as well call it the birth of God.
2: This passage is important to Girard because it plainly describes not a passive fading away of religious belief, but a sacrificial murder, and therefore the birth of a new order. And this new order will once again include heroism and the cleansing of society by sacrifice. Within Christianity, Nietzsche says, the individual was taken so seriously, made such an absolute principle, that he could no longer be sacrificed. But the species only survives, he says, thanks to human sacrifices. Nietzsche's revolt against Christianity with its longing for the imagined vitality of the world before the cross, would have many sequels in the 20th century. One that has particularly interested Girard is the work of the great German philosopher, Martin Heidegger. It's very
1: difficult to define what Heidegger is after, you know. I would define it as a neo pagan view of the world. In order to say this, A very important text is that famous interview, which he gave to the German magazine Der Spiegel, years before his death, which they promised to publish only the day of his death, I mean the week after, which contains that famous statement, we have reached a point where only one God, only a God can save us. And this has to be interpreted as another god, a god entirely different from Christianity, a new beginning from the chaos, you know, out of which everything comes. Heidegger is trying to do away with Christianity, no doubt, in a way which is more extreme than Nietzsche. He's fundamentally Nietzschean in some ways, but he sees very well, for instance, he refuses the Nietzsche formula, the death of God, It's too Christian a formula. If God dies, there is a good chance that he will be reborn.
2: So he talks about the withdrawal of the gods. Heidegger and Nietzsche both want to replace Christianity, to re-found society, and to begin again. This ambition also has its contemporary political form, Girard says he points to two main tendencies in which he thinks the attack on Christianity is expressed. Today, I think we have two totalitarian groups, one which
1: may have exhausted its possibilities, which is the group which is openly anti-Christian, which is Nazism. Nazism, I, I really think the violence of Nazism, is how are we going to get rid of Christianity? Nietzsche talked about uh, doing it through philosophy, genealogy, showing that the Christians are really four victims only for what should I say, extremely vulgar and sinister reasons. You know, because they they are part of the lower class. But uh, the Nazis say we are more powerful than a poor philosopher who was half mad, and we're going to drown the Christian desire to vindicate victims in such injustice, such destruction, that we will prove that the destiny of the Christian world, of the world which has been Christianized, is not the Christian one. I really think you have to regard the open, the explicit nature of uh, Nazi violence. They didn't talk about the concentration camps during the war, the, the death camps because it would have been very bad from a purely tactical, strategic viewpoint. But I'm sure that if they had won the war, they would have publicized it and said, you see, our world has nothing to do with Christianity. We have won, we have proved that Christianity cannot do anything in this world. So this was the explicit anti-Christian view. I think there is another totalitarianism, which is the opposite, which is don't believe that Christianity is defending victims. It's just pretend to. It's nothing but inquisition, terrorism, and so forth. And we are going to show you how to defend victims, which is uh, uh, precisely everything in a way we see today. And the idea of antichrist, of an imitation of Christ, which would uh, at the same time be a total betrayal of Christianity, I think. We have to read much of contemporary history in this life. So, of course, it's so uh, controversial and uh, potentially uh, explosive, you know, that uh, it's very difficult to do. But uh, nevertheless, I think uh, that the signs are converging in that uh, direction. I would say today, what we call the political correctness and so forth, is a super-Christianity.
2: This super-Christianity, which Girard associates with political correctness, reduces the world to nothing but victimization, oppression, and the machinations of power. It takes up the Christian concern with victims, but abandons Christianity, and in particular, Girard says, Christian morality. Today, ideology
1: consists in presenting the Ten Commandments as the worst form of tyranny and oppression. The Enlightenment would never have done that. Voltaire was making fun of the Church and so forth, the aspects of the corruption of the Church. But today, the Ten Commandments, for instance, uh, uh, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, is regarded as the worst oppression. That everything is oppression, everything is victimization. And this, I think, is the totalitarianism of the future. Marxism was only its most uh,
2: primitive form, probably. This new totalitarianism, as Girard sees it, promises to deliver all that was good in Christianity while dispensing with everything repressive. It is currently engaged, Girard has written, in a gigantic intellectual expulsion of the whole Judeo-Christian tradition. The fact that the defense of victims can now be carried on against Christianity is characteristic of our time, Girard says. Our preoccupation with victimization comes from Christianity, but it has, by now, worked its way so deeply into the grain of our society that it has become a valuable form of political currency.
1: Think that today some American states, the American government, or serious politicians, are thinking about indemnities for slavery, 150 years ago. Indemnities that would be paid by the whole American people. And uh, most people's ancestors in this country were not here when there was slavery. They are the descendants of immigrants that came into America after the Civil War, which is the largest number. Therefore, you have something which is amazing and uh, absolutely unique. Can you imagine one single society which would behave the way we do? Not one in all of history. And the sensitivity we have to victims, I would say it's a concrete form of Christianity. Christianity doesn't need to be preached anyway, to de- because the defense of the victims, everybody is going to to do it against everybody else. If I'm French, I talk about uh, American slavery. If I'm American, I talk about the, the terror. Americans are obsessed by the French Revolution and the terror. We are always obsessed with more with the victims of other people than with our own.
2: In the world of today, an accusation of victimization can be an attempt to get one up on a rival just as a claim of victimization, can be a source of advantage. This produces a general competition for victim status in which it is sometimes hard to tell the scapegoats from the scapegoaters. Our world, as Girard said earlier, moves towards both the best and the worst at once. We are more concerned with victims and at the same time more concerned with ourselves than ever before. And according to Gerard, it is precisely this combination that advances the revelation in which we are living. The mixture, in a way, of selflessness and
1: ultra individualism in us contributes more and more to the fact that everything is revealed. You know, the idea that in the last days everything will be revealed just uh, is haunting today. You know, because that's what the Gospels say. Don't worry. Whatever is hidden will be revealed. The course of history is a revelation. The idea that we are at the end of history, that this revelation is over, makes no sense. It is getting more so all the time.
2: During a long career as a writer and teacher, René Girard has ranged over many fields. He has made original contributions in literary criticism, in psychology, in anthropology, in the understanding of violence, in the interpretation of Shakespeare, and in biblical studies. What has animated him throughout is what he calls intellectual passion. He says, for example, that he was led to his hypothesis that society originates in violence, not through any special vocation to oppose violence, but because of the idea's great explanatory power. What
1: drove me to violence, I'm sorry to say, is not an urge to combat violence. It's really an intellectual drive. I felt it solved problems, you know, and I'm interested in solution of problems, I'm interested in text, Showing how things work and so forth, but uh, very few people see that my this intellectual passion is is first and foremost it's like a puzzle, you know, I feel, and it works. You say I've found something you know that's what I like to have that feeling right or wrong, so it's more feeling like a scientist in a way than at the same time, I'm existentially involved, inevitably, nevertheless. That feeling of, it works, it clicks, is very important to me. So I'm a real researcher, in a way, you know. I'm I'm really an academic man.
2: René Girard's intellectual achievement has attracted, over the years, a growing community of scholars dedicated to further explorations in the territory that Girard has mapped. In 1990, some of these scholars founded the Colloquium on Violence and Religion, as a focus for this work, and it has met annually in either Europe or the United States ever since. Since 1994, a journal called Contagion has also been published. One of the founders of the colloquium, and a colleague of Girard's at Stanford before they both retired, is Robert Hamerton Kelly. He's written two books on the New Testament from a Girardian perspective, and is currently the minister of Woodside Village Church, in Woodside, California.
3: Well, I, you know, I must say that he's a living, uh, he's a living example of his own uh, theories. I mean, one is frequently disappointed uh, by the personal presence of great thinkers who turn out to be quite unpleasant or quite unremarkable in their personal presentation. But Girard is the kindest, gentlest man in the world. And I've had these experiences every now and then with him where you're talking along and and it's almost as if somebody changes the changes the lighting or something because you're aware of a very powerful spiritual presence in this man you know that this is an extraordinary person and an extraordinary spirit so my involvement is uh, is about as total as you can get i remember the specific occasion that we were discussing his shakespeare book and i said well, this was before it was published and i was trying to tell him that i thought it, the argumentation was a bit relentless <laughs> he does he does <laughs> tend to be merciless in his argumentation and uh, he took this very badly he thought it was a a criticism well it it was a counsel of perfection, really It was not a criticism. I just said, You know, Renee, you should let up every now and then give the give the opponent a chance <laughs> to breathe or something. but in the middle of that conversation, I had this extraordinary experience of him being transmogrified into and I realized that well uh I was probably out of line. I probably shouldn't be saying these things because I, I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> at the deepest level. <laughs> My comments were probably frivolous.
2: Robert Hamerton Kelly's sense of René Girard as a master teacher is shared by another friend and colleague of Girard's, Gil Bailey. Bailey is an independent writer and lecturer from Sonoma, California and the author of Violence Unveiled, a book that applies Girard's insights to what Bailey calls our contemporary cultural crisis. He undertook this book, he says, in the hope of getting Girard's ideas out of the ghetto in which he felt academic prejudice against Christianity was keeping them
4: confined. There's a kind of embargo against uh, Girard in the academy because of his faith. Uh, The fact that he is a believing Christian was a kind of... uh, you know, in certain areas of the academic world, you, you, they take your card away. For <laughs> you, could, you don't have a license to practice after that. And I realized that that was keeping his work from being really discussed at the way it should be. So there was this embargo, and I felt, well, you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. So I thought, well, I'll just write a book that outflanks the embargo and gets this stuff out to the average person. Well, I was having lunch with him as I, about the time I was preparing to send the manuscript off, and I said, you know, Renee, I started to write this book because uh, for the following reasons I just gave you. And I said, you know, I think maybe I'm just going to contribute to the stereotype because my book is so incredibly Christian. And he leaned over the table and smiled at me and he said, let's burn our boats on the beach. <laughs>
2: René Girard has burned his boats on the beach, adopting during his long career any number of unfashionable postures. He has stood up for meaning when the more Alamo literary critics were saying that words only point at other words. He has insisted that the Bible remains our primary instrument for understanding the world at a time when most were ignoring it or treating it only as a magnificent relic and he has thought and written across the full range of human experience instead of just remaining in some secure academic enclave. For all this, he has occasionally been abused and misunderstood. But in recent years, according to many of Girard's colleagues, there has been a growing interest in many quarters. And Girard himself says, finally, that he too has sensed this new spirit.
1: I feel that there is an opening... Today, which wasn't there a generation ago, you know that you can say things which had have taken people aback and scandalized them to such an extent that before they would have reacted negatively, they would have seen you as a freak, seen me more specifically,
0: <laughs> and which
1: today and they did see me as a freak, you know. So, I feel in the young generation there is a new spirit that. Uh, people are more ready for anything. Bad, good, but they are ready for anything, and that there is a more of this sense of experimentation again. I feel nothing comparable to the type of rejection I've always had with the people of my generation, and even the generation younger than me. And I found it again this year, part of the reason I had such a good press in Paris, is that I encountered lots of students who told me, we had some of violence and the sacred in school, and I was very surprised, because I I didn't even know that the French uh, lycée, you know, which is a public school, they were mentioning uh, La violence in Sacred. and I saw maybe five or six journalists who said that from different papers, you know. So I think it's a mixed picture. I feel that what is being lost about the historical aspects of Christianity, uh, leaves uh, young people in a kind of state of emptiness, but they experience that emptiness. If you talk to them about emptiness, they know what you're talking about. I have contact with this uh, generation. Thank you.
0: On Ideas tonight, you've listened to the fifth and final program of The Scapegoat, a series about the thought of René Girard. René Girard's latest book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, is published in Canada by Novalis and is available in bookstores. Tonight's program was produced and presented by David Cayley with the assistance of Richard Handler. David Cayley would also like to thank Robert Hammerton-Kelly, Gil Bailey, James Allison, Andrew McKenna, Paul Dumouchel, Sandor Goodhart, and Martha and Renée Girard for help, hospitality, and good counsel during the preparation of these programs. Sound production by Dave Field. Associate producer, Liz Naj. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $25 or a set of audio cassettes for $39.95. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Or by email, it's ideas at cbc.ca. We also accept credit card orders by telephone at 416-205-7367. That's 416-205-7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Richard Handler, and I'm Paul Kennedy. News is next.